This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. podcast we are speaking with molly salins she is the author of a book called a break in the fog it it talks about life in a cult and considering i grew up in something that was cult adjacent i was immediately interested um it's based on her experience as a former cult member and how she got out and escaped and ended up working in marriage and family therapy. So welcome, Molly, to the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you. I want to add that the book is 98% fiction. I do want to add that. It's loosely based on my experiences. Yeah, no, no, that's that's pretty. My first novel was loosely based on a story someone told me when I was 19. And so, yeah, so it's, it's you know, loosely based on life. But I, I want to start kind of from the beginning. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book, characters, all that type of thing, and we'll go from there. Um, about the book, the characters. So there are, I would say, three to four main characters. And I won't give anything away because you're going to find this out in the first two chapters. Um, the father, Joe, escapes Nazi Poland right before his bar mitzvah. And he keeps, it, it was, for those who understand trauma like this, it was devastating and traumatizing for him and it goes into more detail as to what happened to him what he witnessed but he ended up escaping to the united states and he was adopted by a christian family and uh he he never told anybody about his jewish background not one soul and uh he ends up marrying and has two children and the children grow up in the um late late 50s 60s and 70s in san francisco proper and the mother you'll find this out in the first chapter the mother has died and you'll soon see that she was both addicted to um, valium and to alcohol so in the 60s um, the mother dies when the children are young and wendy the youngest becomes a drug addict and clara the oldest ends up joining a cult so um, if that's what you meant by the book and the characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So so how, why did you choose to write this? So um, it, I the cult I was in, everything was so, 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 so secret and so scary if you told anybody where you were. Uh, they didn't threaten your life. They threatened your psych, they threatened your spiritual life. 
And they said you would die a spiritual death if you left the cult and if you told of anybody you were in it. And nobody not in it would ever understand the very sacred ideas that were being discussed in the cult. So that I once um, I ended up, unlike Clara in the book, I ended up being kicked out, quote, for negative behavior because I started to question what was going on. Uh, so I was sort of kicked out, but was trying to get out at the same time. At the same time that I left, I didn't even know that I was in a cult. I just knew it was one of the most depressing places I'd ever been in and one of the scariest, but I didn't even know I was in a cult. So once I left, I was a single mom. Um, I ended up divorcing. My husband and I ended up divorcing and I was struggling with career and um, I was actually cleaning houses. And one of my house cleaning clients said um, what, she was a psychologist. And once in a while, I would have questioned, I'd question her about her, her, her career. And then I decided I wanted to be a therapist also. So I spent many years outside of the cult studying therapy and becoming a therapist. But all the while, it was nagging at me that something horrible had happened to me. My ex-husband and I stayed friends. We raised our daughters together as divorced parents, but with conjoint parenting. And um, on the we dropped my daughter off at college, and on the way home, I asked him about the the place we had been involved with, and he said, "You know, we were in a cult, didn't you? You knew that." So I didn't know I was in a cult until 13 years after I had left it, or no, maybe 16 years after I'd left it. So I was continuing, I was in private practice and therapy, and the more I worked with my clients, the more I had to do my own work, and the, the more I delved into my own psyche and spiritual nature, I understood that I had quite a story to tell, and I was a writer. I'd already published a book called Storytelling with Children in Crisis, and this little voice kept nagging me saying, you need to start writing about this cult, and I knew I wanted it to be fiction, but I'd never written a novel before, um, so it was quite a process to start putting it down. Uh, it took me 13 years and many, many, many different, very wonderful editors along the way. So, No, yeah. that's, that's quite impressive. Um, what is it do you think is so attractive about those groups? You know, because we've had over the last, like, Leo Remini's come out criticizing Scientology, and um, there was that one... LV something or other documentary on HBO, you know, every 10, 15 years, this pops up like toast. Um, <laughs> what do you think is, what do you think is so attractive about those groups? Well, they promise, they promise you something. So I was very depressed. I was looking for community. I thought I didn't love my family. I was sure they didn't love me. I couldn't have been more wrong at the time. But I think it it takes a quality of longing, of uh, a very deep longing within the heart, an ache within the heart to, that somebody has to understand you. Um, 
And and if and I think we are community creatures, whether the community is one person, whether the community is just your dog, we're all longing for something to, to care for and to care for us always, you know? And if you really feel like you don't have that, then you meet a couple of people who who seem joyous and they're they're saying, you know, um, you need to come hang out with us. And there's something about they're seeing you, they want to get to know you, they want to get to know who you are. And they promise a, a, a community and they promise a teaching. So if you're bent at all toward wanting to get away from um, organized religion, or if you didn't grow up with organized religion, but the idea of spirit or the idea of the universe, you know, what is that thing about the tract you attract from the universe, the law of attraction. If this community sees your vulnerability and speaks to it, which they're, I think, trained to do, then you're kind of pulled in. There's something really fabulous about wanting to be wanted. They're pulling out, in my case, um, they were pulling out my best in the first year. I was God, I was the child, the, you know, I was the loved child of the cult when I first got pulled in. And and then they just, so then the, um, the brainwashing starts immediately, you know, it begins with, we get, you know, you probably, what was going on at home? Oh, you know, and, then, and you tell them, well, I don't think my mom was ever present, my dad, blah, blah, blah. They go, oh my God, we get it. You know, my mom was just like that you know, and, and now they're connecting through that emotional commonality of not being loved at home. And then they're really building on that. And I think the attraction is, wow, I, not only do people see me and understand me, but, but we have shared experiences. And, oh, they're offering me, you know, oh, well, you love to do this, well, come do this with us. We do this all the time. So that they start to offer little tidbits of, you know, in, in my case, it wasn't what so much, what do you love to do so much as what have you always longed to do? And we can make that happen for you. It was, you know, that thing, too good to be true. Yeah. So I, I <clears throat> No, that... That I, I see that I grew up evangelical and I tell people, you know, the prosperity gospel is very addicting, especially to people who are who are struggling. Um and uh in that world you see a lot of oh, you know, high high paid professionals, small business owners, um this type of thing. And one of, I'd say the, the magic about evangelical churches is it starts to become a real source for people's business. You know, somebody's a carpenter and he gets hired and then other people. And so it, it becomes this community. It's this life. It's where your kids are going in. It all soon it becomes a huge part of your business as well. And, and it's all billed as God's blessings and look all this type of thing. Um, when the reality is really just community word of mouth marketing. Um, that's that was the magic. No God involved. Um, you know, sort of thing. And uh, and I think, you know, for people in a world that is so atomized and divided and so lacking in community, that and especially the tribalism, because there's an us versus them element. That's right. That's right. 
that's a really good point that tribalism for me um i thought that a husband would would save me i was convinced um e even before i entered college that that i needed a husband so i didn't have one when i came out of college which is probably a good thing but i was really searching for that and this was the counterculture of san francisco where nobody everyone was getting divorced and there was free love and the cult i joined it wasn't like that at all men were dressed very straight and they were oh my god they were gorgeous and so it was a sexual lure that brought me into and i found out months later that all of those men were married you know the women were beautiful too they were all dressed to the help but nobody was wearing wedding rings and yeah. in those first meetings the women weren't either they were luring whatever men they could get in so it's all built on deceit and uh and their th whole thing was we really believe in family we really believe in monogamy let's get back to the basics let's be get back to quote normalcy it felt good to me it was a scary world for me as a teenager to be growing you know some people romanticize the 60s for me it was a very scary time to be growing up right there right then when over the intercom in high school the principal would get on once a month if not once a week along with Jan janice joplin who overdosed of heroin the fault your following fellow students have also died of heroin and then there was no ceremony there was no talk there were no psychologists to come on board to talk about the loss it was just pure craziness. So, um, so to come into a group of people who were honoring what I would call sanity, you know, we don't, you know, the drug is your heart. The drug is connecting to, 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 um, to God. They use God, but it wasn't a religious cult that I joined. It was more like, if you understand your longing, that longing is, you're longing to connect to something higher than you, something that loves you, that even loves you at this very time. So that was it for me, because I was writing in my journal day after day, what is this ache in my heart? It hurts so much. Now, it turns out they weren't wrong. I, I believe that that ache in the heart was a desire to, to connect to an energy higher than me. I don't have to call it God. It's so integrated in me now. I don't know what to call it, but there's definitely something magical and mysterious out there that, um, that I don't have words for. Oh, yeah, those, those unseen, those unseen forces, um, you know, every culture has the, has had their own way of talking about them and quantifying them and all this sort of thing. So that definitely makes sense. It's kind of interesting how you talk about um, how kind of frightening the, the social upheaval of the 1960s was. Um, the only other person I've ever heard talk about it in that terms is my mother, uh -huh. who was in grade school into middle school through that decade um and and because and, and, it, and it's and it's and I, was, I said it took me many years to kind of realize that um and i started thinking about you know all the things that were happening and all this sort of thing and i'm kind of like yeah and having lived you know through the chaos you know of my life i'm 35 so things have been weird for about 20 years at this point um i, I kind of like yeah that must be that must have been so very 
frightening for a child young person to go through and not quite sure what was going to happen next or what next shoe was going to drop um right you know it's like how much chaos do you need it's like we it's like it's like we can give you race rights we can give you assassinations massive protests bad foreign war i mean stop me with any of this starts to sound familiar um you know so like yeah i mean it's it's a difficult it's a difficult thing hence i think the allure for the stability and that's and right. even now we hear those calls back to normalcy that's half the G- platform of the gop right now is right. the return to quote unquote normalcy Right. Whatever that means. I know what I meant when I used it just now, whatever that meant. Just, right. But it's a sense of stability of, um, and what is, well, the, the difference then too was that there was nobody to talk to about any of it. You know, yeah. you could talk to your friends about protesting the war or supporting your friends who understood they were gay or transgender, but you couldn't talk about the fear. There was no language for that. There was just no language to talk about, hey, this is pretty scary. You know, um, it was more around uh, around the, the, the stuff at that time and what boy was interested in you, right? But there wasn't... I didn't whisper to my girlfriends, aren't you terrified about what's going on? None of us had the wherewithal. It wasn't in even language in our brains to say, and there weren't any guidance counselors to go to at school. So there there was nothing formed to take care of any of this in high school or, or middle school. And your mom may have had that issue too. Now we have a lot I of I would people- dare say so. She grew up in rural West Texas. So <laughs> yeah, there was nothing. There was That's nothing. It. Yeah. Right. And so now there's people you can talk to. It's all over the news. But the craziness of now is 10 billion times crazier than it was when I was growing up. I mean, we won't even go into the politics now that I don't want to do that. But in, <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of chaos, I think it's a lot worse now. Um, but at the time, you know, San Francisco was the cult, the culture for cults. I mean, we had Jim Jones, we had... Um, 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 I can't think of them all now. The the Krishnas, uh, the board and gang Christians, and then the cult that I was in. And I'm sure, and I've talked to other people. There are a million other. Oh, were you in this cult? No, I hadn't heard of that one. Which one were you in? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's a it's an odd. I I when I the first magazine I ever worked at, the lady I was working for was in this very strange kind of pseudo religious cult in Southern Colorado. Um, and around the Colorado Springs area and like in the early eighties and like literally she escaped by just like leaving the property and like hitchhiked and like met this woman who helped her and all this type of thing and that kind of got her life going and, um, and so, and then she, she went on to, she was married and gotten divorced and then remarried later on. And it was, um, it was really interesting to think, you know, and she she was in she was big into like the raw milk movement and natural foods and raw foods and all this type of thing. Um, 
Right. Yeah, and and her husband's the Western distributor for a company called Standard Process, which does cold pressed vitamin supplementation and all this type of thing. Um, but it was interesting, just kind of you know, uh, on a couple occasions she she talked about it, and it's just such a a weird mind blowing thing. But then again, I've had a couple of experiences in, you know, the way I grew up in evangelicalism and the way that. I, I was involved in the business that was kind of sur- surrounded by this personality, all this type of thing. I just, I kind of wonder, I mean, in myself, it's like, okay, this is an ADHD autism thing. I never had a lot of friends, never had a lot of community. I'm a target and susceptible. But I also, I wonder what it is in other people that makes, that makes them the target, how they get picked out of the crowd, you know? That always, it also, I always kind of want, there, there's really no answer to that, but it's kind of weird, some weird thing of like, what is it about it? So it's such a good question. Once I found out I was in a cult, I told everybody. Now it was good <laughs> 16, 18 years later, but I had a friend who lived in Montreal and we went to the Montreal, I think it was the jazz festival or the folk festival. And we were sitting way up high on bleachers and I just told her, about my cult experiences. And she said, let's look down on the crowd and you tell me who you think cult members would approach to be in a cult. It was such an interesting exercise. And so I think the people I who could have been interested were were sort of people who are a little bit hunched over, maybe between the ages of 20, 20 and 25, you know, younger people, um, men who kind of had an open face and women too, who looked kind of wide-eyed and open. So what is it um, when, it's such a good question, and there's no answers in a million answers because I think it really depends on the de- the longing in the person you approach. So I did a lot of recruiting, and I probably didn't bring a single person <laughs> into the cult. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I had the. I always had the same problem. I was. I was never very good at. At, at witnessing and getting people to come to church and all this type of thing. I was always terrible at that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's just an odd, it's just such an odd phenomenon. I think it's, it's really, for me, I always find it disconcerting. I don't know if you found this, like when you try to explain that life to people, cause it was very all encompassing when you grew up and I was evangelical and homeschooled and those two communities feed into each other. So it's like, it's very all encompassing. Most people, they just, their eyes just kind of glaze over and their mind goes blank because they just don't understand that world, that life. And it's like, yeah, you had to be there, you know, sort of thing, you know, sort of, yeah. I I have a neighbor who said, uh, what did she say to me? She said, I would never join anything like that. And I said to her, you don't know that you're joining a cult. You know, you could go to a cooking class. You could be on a trip to Italy. You could be doing something innocent, something you really love. 
and end up in a cult. And then she said to me, no, you don't get it. I don't join anything. I don't take classes. <laughs> <So> <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's a good insurance policy, I will say. Yeah, that is that is a good a good insurance policy. And I have to, I have to say that uh, ever since growing up that way, I don't tend to join things anymore. <laughs> like, I, yeah, it's like, oh, it's like the organization kind of like, ooh, you lost me at the word organization. We're good. Like, um, yeah. Right. And you've probably built up antennas too. You know, I, I enjoyed groups. I enjoyed, you know, taking a writing class here and there. Um, I found a spiritual center that I just love the people. So how do you know when it's not a cult, you know, um, when they're not asking for money consistently, they're not punishing you and making you pay more money if you don't listen to their rules. Um, two, you can, if you're in, in an organized religion or joining a class of some kind, if you've paid, paid for it, you can come and go to that class and people might say, hey, I missed you last week. But the teacher isn't going to be calling you and texting you and emailing you and saying, where the hell are you? You're, you're a disloyal member. You know, so if you have your freedom in whatever you join to come and go as you please, to understand what the rules are, if there's something you have to pay for, pay for it. If you've got a payment plan, they're not going to come after you for more money once that plan is finished up. But your organization is really clear about what the rules are and don't change them suddenly on you. And that's where it becomes crazy making. And where the organization is not playing favorites every other week you know, where you're the bad, you're really horrible one week and then the queen the next week, that becomes a crazy making process where you just keep trying to be the queen all the time. And every time you fall, you want to, they bring you closer again. So it's, you just well, and let's, keep... and let's also face it, that's a love bombing deprivation pattern because these things tend to be ran by narcissists. <laughs> and, <laughs> and with their projection, that their own cycle of relations with the people starts to become an organizational habit. It sets a pattern. Mm -hmm. Very true. Yeah. And yeah. And so they, uh, and I, I say this because I was in a small business who had a leader like that. And it was 100 in terms of that you could be the best thing ever on Wednesday. You could be not worth shit on the shingle by Friday. Um, and sometimes you could do both in the same day. Um, and and it was in and in the you know the more things that get asked of you, um, the lies you're asked to tell, the lies you're asked to go along with, all this type yeah. of thing. And um, and especially as a young person, it's really hard to stay out of that because it becomes irresistible and especially if it's like the thing you want or the thing you're interested in or the dream you're trying to achieve which was all three for me um then it becomes it, it seems like the well that's the price you pay for doing that you know and you start rationalizing and justifying it and it, it yeah yeah so uh I Yes, you mentioned yes, you mentioned getting getting out and you got into being a therapist and all this type of thing. What was the first uh like month after leaving like? It was such a huge relief 
because I was a single mom and my daughter was, she had just turned five when I left for good. And I had to get the either the classes or the recruiting times were always like seven o'clock till 10 or 11 classes could go till two or three in the morning. So I always had to find a babysitter. My ex had her two nights a week, but um, it, it still hurts me to this day, even though she and I are very, very close and we love each other to pieces. It still hurts me to this day to say, I was hardly around at night. I mean, she once she'd go to bed at 7.30 or 8, I was out the door and I had to have a babysitter. So in a way, she always knew I was out and I was always back, always back, way before she woke up. But I never had a night to myself. So this was also part of the cult thing where you never had any time to think about anything. So when I was, when I finally left and I had an evening and, you know, TV was the monster. TV told lies. TV would feed your head with what we call now call fake news. Don't ever watch it. Don't listen to the news. I just went, I can watch TV until I go to sleep tonight. I can sit on my couch. I don't have to go. You know, I, I may have had some PTSD every time the phone rang, I'd go like this, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but it was such a relief in those first few weeks. It's just like, wow. You know, it wasn't like I was dressed. You always had to dress up. I, I I was dressed up watching TV with my daughter, but I wasn't present. I knew I would have to go. Or even if I was reading a story to her, I knew I would have to go. So I was half present there. And to be really able to get into a story with her, read it to her and be in the story and sort of act it out, play it out with her and ask her what she would do. And, you know, to really participate in reading with her, it was such a joy. I had a good night's sleep. Well, I can't remember if I slept well when I first left, because I think there was some PTSD going on with yeah. the fear, whatever it was, but I didn't feel bad. I didn't, I was pretty depressed when I left and I was pretty depressed when I entered. So there wasn't much change there. Um, I just, it had just been added to why I was, whatever names I called myself at the time, they just seemed more true. So it enhanced it. It increased the depression. At the same time, it felt so freeing to be out of there. And it wasn't the type of Jim Jones or the Moonies where they would come after you if you left. It wasn't like that. That's a blessing (laughs) for sure. That is. Yeah. You know, you got were able to let leave and, and let them and let them go. I know that there's, there's people in um in Utah for young people leaving extreme Mormonism. They have whole organizations to help those kids adjust to real life and everything. Yeah. And so Wow. Um, there, there, if, yeah. if I had known about debrief if I had known I was in a cult and knew about debriefing, I probably would have gone for it. I, I I somehow figured it out. I don't know how I held that all that in for 13 years, 15, 16 years. Uh, and I had therapy and I never told my therapist about it. So I don't know. It was really buried down. 
No, I didn't. I really didn't understand growing up super religious and evangelical was basically a cult until, oh, probably three, four years ago. Uh Um, I dialed into the ex-evangelical community on Reddit and on Twitter and um, and I found people that had experiences similar to mine, and I was kind of like, you know, okay, and hmm, that was, you know, really cool, and I started contributing, and then, like, you kind of, spin then people start to mention, be kind of like, and, and it was a realization a lot of us hadn't had, but we're kind of like, hey, everybody, like, if you think about this, all of this stuff is, like, the definition of a cult, you know, and you don't think of it that way because it's a church and it's a denomination and it's these people are on television and it's very like out and in the public. It's not secretive, you know, <laughs> people have heard of it, you know, people have heard of it sort of thing. You don't really think of it in those terms, but then when you think about, you know, the control, the dress codes, the moralistic hand wringing, the virtue signaling, mm. all of this stuff, it's like, oh, well, that makes sense now. Um, and that was that was kind of a a bit of a frightening realization. Um, and uh, but now, I mean, and I have other friends now that I met later, not in that world, but met them later, and they grown up similar to me. And uh, and it's 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 always a series of conversations, and it's something where you know I I still find a lot of solace in being friends with them because they're kind of the only ones who understand what it was like to grow up in that world you know yeah i talked to other people who grew up totally different and they just can't relate different worlds different worlds they it it is really different different worlds and where you grew up in it Right. I was in it for seven years, but I didn't grow up in it. But the principles are the same. We're a family here. You can't, well, the cult I joined was very, very secret. You can't tell anybody. Nobody's going to, you'll, how did they put it? Um, you're going to create spiritual holes if you tell people outside, you, you're going to leak energy. And the very profound and sacred work we're doing here won't be able to manifest because somebody's going to be leaking energy. We can't have that. Yeah. I mean, which, and here's the sad thing is when you're in that world, in that context, doing that thing, that makes complete and total sense. Like, that's, that's like the hard <laughs> so thing. Of it. Like, <laughs> it's, it's hard to explain people to kind of like, yeah, when you're in it and you're doing it, a lot of this stuff that sounds absolutely crazy makes complete sense <laughs> so in right. that moment. You're so right. And we're completely sleep deprived and nutrition deprived when the children the leaders of the cult said you know we were like paying so much money to the cult i didn't have a dime to myself it was always something else that had to be done for the sake of the work for the sake of the sacred work that's being done what sacred work (laughs) what was it no we i had no idea what was being done except that i knew something was being done it was all very mysterious which made it 
kind of more meaningful, like, oh, I can't wait to find out what this is, right? And I never did find out, to tell you the truth. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, no, no, whole- no, literally, there was, I think it was somebody, some famous person left Scientology and had never heard of Thetans, which is like the whole basis of the whole religion. Like, but had ne- I'm like, you were there for 20 years and you never heard about Thetans. Uh, like they didn't tell you anything then like you learned nothing (laughs) i'm like you could have learned more about your religion by watching south park but hey whatever (laughs) (laughs) they discuss thetons on south park just saying (laughs) you're right so after i left all of that money the cult leaders paid cash for mansions all over the country and and they bought these mansions in cash. They left no record of themselves. Mm. It was just that's where all that's what the mysterious sacred work was about. A, a really uh, fancy privately held real estate portfolio. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Yeah. And her her own son ended up suing her for for lies, for money, for. I don't even know what, but when you have a child that turns around to sue you, you know something's pretty wrong there. But yeah, yeah I hear what you're saying. You know, you don't know in the moment what the hell's going on. You just know that it makes perfect sense. So what the cult leader would say, I didn't. Was Sarah? Sarah was born at the time. She's and nobody had any money. She'd right. say, "Buy king." Buy Tang. You don't have to buy real, real oranges. The kids don't care if you oh know. <laughs> it's vitamin C, and this is what the astronauts drink. If the if it's good enough for the astronauts, why wouldn't it be good for your children? And it's so inexpensive. There isn't a single nutrient in Tang. No wonder the kids were off the wall all the time. Yes. You, know, you don't need to feed your kids dinner. Just buy them candy. They love candy. It's okay. You'll save money that way. No, that's a that's a, a recipe for dental work, is what that is. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the, the brain doesn't, there's no nutrients in, in the candy. So the brain's not getting the nutrients it needs to function properly. Yeah. And then we were all sleep deprived. We were up till two or three in the morning and then expected to get get up and take care of our children and be at work and function. Yeah, no, that's that's insane. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, as I knew it would be when I invited you on. So this has been this has been great. Um, This is the part of the show where we do plugs. Why don't you let us know where people can buy the book and where they can find you online? Okay, the book is called A Break in the Fog. You can buy it on Amazon. You can get it in Kindle version or on paperback. If you love it, please tell everyone you know and please write a five-star review. And you can find me at abreakinthefog.com or a break in the fog at a break in the fog. And my name is Molly Salins, and I'd love to hear from you. Yeah.
that's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners. So please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>